0: It's The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. It's our 25th episode. We will celebrate that later in the show, but first, Catherine Belton, a longtime reporter on Russia, discusses her forthcoming book, Putin's People, and how the Russian leader came to power amidst a mind boggling series of corruption. How did Putin get here, and what's the future for the president of Russia? And how does Donald Trump figure into all of this? And now, The Nexus. Catherine Belton is the author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and then Took on the West, available for pre-order now. She worked from 2007 to 2013 as the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times, and in 2016 as the newspaper's legal correspondent. Catherine has previously reported on Russia for Moscow Times and Businessweek. In 2009, she was shortlisted for Business Journalist of the Year at the British Press Awards. She lives in London. Catherine Belton, welcome to The
1: Nexus. Hi, thanks so much for having me on.
0: This is the most comprehensive, engaging book I've read about Russia or Vladimir Putin. Kudos to you. Putin is a virtual, if not outright dictator, though. Uh, Where did Putin actually come from? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, that's a, a very good question. I mean, he came from the bowels of the Russian security services. Um, and I, I think, you know, he, in the mid 80s, he was sent to Dresden, uh, East Germany as a mid-level, uh, KGB officer. And there he was the main liaison officer, uh, between the KGB and the Stasi. And it was really there that he began to learn, uh, some of the tricks that we're seeing, uh, deployed against the West today. He was, uh, involved in, Active measures. I mean, his his role there, in fact, has actually always been who sort is of portrayed as as being uh, he didn't do very much. Like his colleagues, have written books about how he spent all his time just writing senseless reports, and he himself claimed that he drank so much beer because there was nothing else to do that he put on a couple of pounds. Um, but actually, it, I'm not sure whether it's really the the case because. Uh, whatever they were doing there, uh, he and his KGB colleagues went to enormous efforts to burn any trace of, of what they were doing. I mean, they, they, they kind of destroyed truckloads of documents and sent several other truckloads back to Moscow. And it turns out, uh, I mean, at least according to one defector who worked with him then that actually he was engaged in active measures against the West. Uh, This defector told of how Putin was a handler for one notorious neo-Nazi who was sent into the West and then later returned to East Germany where he helped stoke the rise of the far right. Uh, The defector has also claimed that Putin uh, was trying to obtain once some untraceable poison from a professor and trying to coerce the professor into giving it to him uh, through planting pornographic material on him. <laughs> I mean, all these are quite nefarious activities and also um he In those days, uh, there was uh, an embargo on, uh, on exporting uh, high technology into the Soviet Union uh, because of fears it could be used for military means, so any potential dual-use technology was banned. There was an embargo. What Putin and his friends uh, were engaged in was sort of uh, helping the siphoning of this technology into the East and then further into the Soviet Union, and it was really there that he learned some of the techniques that we see uh, deployed by his regime in money laundering and using front companies to mask the origin of funds. Uh, they also began, you know, he was part of a, a, a faction of, of foreign intelligence who could really see the, the writing on the wall as well for the communist regime. They knew that uh, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't going to be able to compete with the West uh, economically well. They had a planned economy and really they began preparing a change, they could see, uh, that sort of, it, could be possible that the the communist regimes would collapse across the Eastern Bloc and they were preparing just in case so through the, some of the technologies that the smuggling deals they also, his uh, close allies began to siphon funds so that they could keep their networks in, in case of a collapse and the German authorities also believed that Putin was busy preparing that he was also engaged in recruiting agents who weren't tainted by sort of connections with the soviet elite during the 80s but they were reaching deep into the second and third tier of of the east german uh political circles so that they could continue to have agents even after a collapse because they could see that this is there that Sort of dissent was rising because of the low living standards and because, uh, compared to to the West, and it was so much more visible in East Germany, Germany, because they were so close to to the Western and there was so much dissent too against the heavy hand of the secret police. So really, they were they were getting ready for, for change, and it's it's, it's yeah. I think this time was extremely instructive for for Putin. It was kind of a training ground for everything that he that was later to come and, and how he parades now
0: yeah i mean and you you touched on it uh in those comments and i appreciate it in that i wanted to open up the idea about one part of the book i lived through but didn't know much about was the backstory of the collapse of the soviet union i mean here in the u.s Mm -hmm. we were always told that americanism and western values brought the evil empire down but As you started to mention, it sounded like the forces that toppled the Soviet Union may have come more from within. Um, Am I right about that? And can you explain? Yeah, I think it
1: was... I think it was, it, it was both. I mean, obviously you probably couldn't have one without the other. There was a great deal of dissent. Uh, the Soviet Union itself had become untenable economically. But really what was driving the change was within this kind of elite of, of, of the foreign in- intelligence officers. Um, I mean, obviously not all the KGB was the same. You had the domestic service who were sort of the typical meatheads who were just busy Trying to crack down on dissent at home and sort of were acting like heavy-handed oaths but the the foreign the foreign intelligence service they were they were much more nimble uh much more wily they Widely, uh, they could see that the Soviet economy was never going to be able to compete with the West, and it was indeed unsustainable to have ambitions for global empire without having a, a functioning economy that could sort of generate more cash. So, uh, if if so, if, if if you look at who was uh, staffing the research institutes that were kind of mapping the perestroika reforms of the time, that was these reforms which were to crack open the Soviets state monopoly and introduce competition into the economy, uh, they were all staffed by uh, people who were either foreign intelligence officers or people who were very close to the foreign intelligence elite. Uh, there was one institute called the Institute of World Economy uh, that was really a driving uh, force for change and drafted many of the early perestroika reforms and that was headed by a guy called Yevgeny Primakov uh, who later became uh, the head of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service and it was a real kind of engine room for some of the reforms and really they, they, they could see that, that, that Russia had to move uh, to the market uh, the Soviet Union had to move to the market in, in order to compete and indeed sort of one by one so under the tentative reforms launched by Gorbachev uh, who wanted he, he he wanted to introduce some competition but very much in a, a controlled way he wanted of course to remain in control and for uh, the Soviet Union to remain a socialist state. But the foreign intelligence operatives, when they were sort of looking at at what was going on, they also kind of realized that Gorbachev's reforms weren't going to be effective. One of them said his efforts were about as effective as, as fried snowballs, that they weren't going to be able to make the market transition under his leadership. So one by one, they began, uh, sort of quietly, uh, moving to support, uh, Boris Yeltsin, who was this rambunctious leader of the democracy movement, and kind of they were slowly abandoning Gorbachev. And also what was kind of really forgotten as well in the tumult of the time, because of course it was this time of intense change and upheaval and, and chaos, was the fact that, that as kind of a small kind of group of foreign intelligence oper- operatives were also brought into a- size the Communist Party on how to survive under the conditions of a market economy. And they persuaded uh, the Communist Party that they should start transporting part of the Communist Party wealth. This huge, you know, they did have still some uh, foreign uh, currency accounts. They had access to huge piles of, of raw materials that they should start transporting this into kind of a web of offshore companies and joint ventures in the West that there will be. All be managed and handled by the KGB foreign intelligence operatives. They told the Communist Party they should create an underground economy uh, that would allow them to continue to survive uh, in a market economy. But I guess when the hardline coup failed, this hardline coup, which was or the group of was, was kind of Old Politburo, old guard members who wanted the reform efforts to cease both politically and economically. When that failed, uh, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was banned, and it was the foreign intelligence operatives who had the keys to the accounts. And a lot, of course, had been stolen, but they also uh, w- were able to sort of preserve some of these funds to, to keep their uh, own networks going. And I guess what was also so, um, Quite telling was I was talking before about how one by one they'd sort of begun to move to support Yeltsin. And it's really the case that some people believe that the whole, the, the revolution in Russia of August 91 went down so bloodlessly because it was sort of these factions of the elite who could see that they could live better and actually, uh, perform better, uh, under a market economy than if they held on to the sort of the remnants of, of, of Soviet Empire and the communist regime. So in a a sense one of them told me they decided to blow up their own house and sort of begin from scratch but in doing so they were sort of preserving funds at least the foreign intelligence operatives where they could continue to survive and operate and continue their actions against the West.
0: Hmm. And I mean you talked about Boris Yeltsin and he was seen as Mm -hmm. this Great hope for democracy in the new Russia, but mm-hmm. he left in a cloud of controversy and scandal. What what happened with Yeltsin and how was Putin involved?
1: Um, so, I, I think, yes, by, by August 98, uh, Yeltsin was in a, a fearfully weak position. There'd been this terrible, uh, financial crisis, which had sort of wiped out, uh, most of the Russian population's savings, probably for the second or third time since he came to power. And, uh, so he, politically, he, he was very, very weak. Um, and he was sort of backed into, uh, having sort of foisted on him, uh, a prime minister who he really didn't like at all. And that was, again, it was Yevgeny Primakov, this former, uh, head of the foreign intelligence service, a, a spy master. And he, he, but he was also a, a kind of a bit of a, a communist dinosaur, at least in Yeltsin's eyes. And Primakov became his prime minister. Yeltsin wasn't able to pick his own man because the communist dominated Duma just, just wouldn't allow it. So he was just too weak politically. And, uh, amid this sort of, Great uh, kind of transfer of, of power, almost that was going on. The Yeltsin and his family were also threatened with kind of legal uh, kind of investigations. There was a criminal probe going on in the background into the use by his family of, of some credit cards, which had been given to them by a Swiss uh, construction firm, which had won a multi-billion-dollar contract to reconstruct the, the Kremlin to, to renovate it. Um, and they really—I uh, mean, the, the, the sums involved are minuscule compared to today's corruption scandals. They were just a couple of hundred thousand dollars. I mean, today we today's corruption scandals, of course, amount to billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. But in in those days, it was a it was an enormous threat to Yeltsin because he was so weak politically. Uh, the entire uh, Russian parliament was against him, as was most of the the rest of the elite. And it was also something that could lead to his jailing or his family's jailing uh, because in those days it was illegal for a state official to hold a foreign bank account and these credit cards were seen as being equivalent to that so, yeah, he, he, they, they were, they were in deep, in deep trouble. And there was a, there was a probe going on in Switzerland and also, uh, run by the Russian prosecutors. And so they were, they were really casting about, uh, for someone to protect them. Uh, and, and Putin very quietly in the background had been moving, uh, quite rapidly through the ranks of the Kremlin ever since he moved there in, in 96. Uh, he started off with a mid-level position, but by 97, and he was already deputy head of the, the Kremlin uh, and shortly afterwards he was first deputy Kremlin chief of staff and then head of the Russian security services but he's always sort of seemed to the Yeltsin family so unassuming distinctly unambitious In in 97 when he was deputy Kremlin chief of staff he'd even offered to resign because he said well I think I've, I've done my bit now I've done everything I can to serve my country perhaps it's time for me to go and do something else and this really only burnished his credentials in in the eyes of the Kremlin chief of staff at the time Valentin Yumashev who was later to become Yeltsin's uh, son-in-law cuz uh, Russian politics at the time it was such a, a den of vipers and here was this unassuming guy who just seemed to lack any ambition at all so shortly after instead he was actually promoted further to first deputy Kremlin chief of staff and he just continued to climb the ranks and he'd always, uh, impressed them with his shows of loyalty. Putin had even sort of ventured so far as to, to break the law and to help protect a former mentor of his, the former St. Petersburg mayor who he'd worked for in the early nineties, who was a leading Democrat at the time and he was being pursued by other old guard members of the security services and, and Putin sort of whisked him, whisked, uh, his former mentor, Anatoly Sobchak, out of the country out of the clutches of the, the prosecutors because he wanted to protect him so the Yeltsin family could really see that if this person was loyal to them he would go to great lengths uh, to protect the, his allies and they could see that he had a network of uh, security services officers uh, around him uh, who could also help protect them against this sort of mounting threat uh, of investigation over the credit cards so And Putin had really convinced them as well that he was a liberal, that he was progressive. He was very charming, one-on-one. And And probably they didn't want to see past uh, kind of this veneer of of liberalness that he projected because all the while that he was sort of painting himself as a liberal and progressive, actually, in the background, he was continuing to meet with... Yeltsin's arch enemy uh, Yevgeny Primakov who was the prime minister that that Yeltsin didn't like at all and who was involved uh, to some degree in the the investigation of the the Yeltsin family and uh, it also turned out uh, in the course of my investigation for the book that the whistleblower who found the credit card accounts in the first place was also an old ally of Putin's who'd worked with him in St. Petersburg so it was actually it Just look for that actually he was playing a double game. All along, so he was trying to win the Yeltsin family's trust, uh, at the same time as, as as knowing quite well the people who'd been leading the the legal uh, threats against the Yeltsin family. So he he kind of he did play uh, a very uh, clever game, and really the Yeltsin family the Yeltsin family believed, actually, as, as well as saving themselves from legal threats at this time, that they were also saving the country against a, a communist revanche that would kind of unpick all the democratic reforms of the Yeltsin years. They believed that Putin was the one who would continue their legacy but um, <laughs> I guess they were severely mistaken. They may have saved the country from communist revanche but what they really had succumbed to is this kind of a creeping coup uh, by the security men of which uh, Putin really played a key role.
0: That's right and And there was obviously a time where Putin was highly thought of in the West, but then he went Mm -hmm. to being hated. Was it all because of the annexation of Crimea?
1: Um, I think obviously that, that was a, a trigger, but of course the warning signs, uh, appeared long, long before that. I mean, initially, uh, during Putin's first term as president, of course, he did make sort of great efforts and great overtures to the West. Everyone remembers how after the September 11th, uh, terrorist attacks, Putin agreed to open Central Asia, the transit corridor for the U.S. to conduct operations, uh, in Afghanistan um, and you know but he was always expecting uh, something in return. He's a transactional guy. Uh, he's you know if you scratch my back uh, he's expecting to be scratched in return and when the the US uh, instead of, of doing favors for him uh, unilaterally walked out of an anti-ballistic missile treaty and then continued uh, NATO's expansion eastwards and also uh, began work on a missile defense shield close to Russia's borders. Putin really kind of took it as a personal insult but I think the the US and and the West uh, generally was sort of still a little euphoric uh, following uh, what they believed was a a Cold War victory they believed that their system had been proven to be the best that all Russia uh, was all that was left now for Russia to do was to kind of integrate with the West and join this Western-led system of rules. They never really thought that uh Russia would ever try to subvert uh, the post cold war war order and even though there had been sort of several warnings about sort of Russia's potential for misbehavior including in in 2007 when when Putin basically uh, gave this laundry list of of grievances at the Munich security conference when he went through one by one and basically said told the West, watch out, there's some developing economies rising and you're not going to be number one forever. I think the West and the US Defense Secretary, for instance, just closed their eyes and didn't even look at him while he was speaking in Robert Gates, uh, who was the Defense Secretary at the time in the US, basically, when he was asked to comment, basically brushed it all off and said, we don't need another Cold War. And indeed, the US had other priorities and it didn't believe it, it needed to look look at Russia as a potential threat because it did have a relatively weak economy in comparison. But I guess all the while, the problem was that uh, Putin's Kremlin, even though sort of First two years of his presidency, he conducted all these liberal economic reforms. Uh, uh, by 2003, they were already kind of taking measures to hoover up very strategic assets in the Russian economy. They were taking over all companies, subverting the country's legal system along the way, so that essentially, if anyone, if any tycoon or billionaire opposed them, he would face a threat of, of jail or other. Legal sanctions, so they were really bending the economy uh, to to their will and enabled them to take control of uh, (laughs) literally hundreds of billions of dollars. And and the West had always viewed the the Kremlin takeover of the economy as well as as pure kleptocracy—that it was just about sort of Putin and his men filling his pocket, filling their pockets, but. In fact, I mean, there's only so much money that you can spend on mansions for yourself and, and so on. And actually, Putin and, and his KGB cronies also saw that the cash flows that they were able to take over with, with currency they could use to undermine and corrupt Western politicians and sort of try to set the, the Western post world post 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 cold war order is kind of against itself so uh, it could disrupt uh, uh western democracies by funding uh extreme left politicians and extreme right politicians and begin to really tear into the stability that we we'd seen for so many years yeah and i
0: mean you you that that's uh far reaching in terms of all that you know putin was doing and I mean, one thing I wanted to drill down more on was the oligarchs. I mean, we hear that Mm -hmm. term relating to Russia, but I have a sense not many people understand their fundamental role in Russian society and business. Mm
1: hmm. Mm hmm. Yes, um, I guess their the role has really changed, um, a lot since, uh, the Yeltsin years, because the oligarchs were, um, they were the guys who basically made an, an incredible fortune so rapidly during the tumult of the, of the Yeltsin era reforms, and they actually had their start. In life, uh, with help from from the KGB, and they met the, but they made so much money, uh, really through unfair access and for laws being drawn up in their own favor. And in the Yeltsin years, uh, the 90s era oligarchs really were all powerful. They were the true definition of oligarchs, i.e., they combined economic and intense political sway over the government. And of course, uh, when Putin and and his KGB cronies came power. uh They looked on the Yeltsin-era oligarchs with great disdain. They believed that the Yeltsin-era oligarchs owed them a debt because it was the KGB who helped create them and, in fact, that the assets that they owned belonged to the Russian state anyway, that they'd only really been given to them for safekeeping because they never paid a fair price for them in the first place. So, one by one, uh really, uh the Putin guys began sort of picking them off where either by jailing uh, them through kind of cooked up or selective uh, criminal charges or by just Threatening them with with legal sanctions. So the oligarchs of the nineties era uh, were very much changed under under Putin's rule. Rather than being all powerful and having sway over the government, uh, they became in essence uh, vassals of the Putin state. One Russian tycoon told me, <laughs> essentially, we're all serfs in Putin's Russia. If we get an order from the Kremlin, uh, then we have to we have to. Fight follow up on it and another, another told me, uh, Pyotr Aven, I, th- I think it was, uh, he said, you know, if we get to a call from the Kremlin to spend $1 billion on this or that project, we're so beholden to them now, we, we have to agree. Um, so really, the, for the role of the 90s era oligarchs really changed. But what actually happened also was a changing of the guard because while Putin's men were sort of crushing the 90s era tycoons or at least making sure they very much towed the Kremlin line, they were bringing in their own sort of KGB connected cronies to take over the the most strategic cash flows, so that Putin's men could have control over these uh, strategic assets, whether it be oil or, or vast metals companies, you know, Russia is so rich in, more reti- in raw materials so it was kind of like the oligarchs of the 90s era in many ways became custodians of the Kremlin they all had to they were all either loyal from the start to the Kremlin because they had been close to Putin or they became in essence kind of uh, vassals who were kind of ordered to, to do things by the Kremlin or sometimes perhaps they tried to do favors for the Kremlin because they knew it was burnish their credentials and everyone, I mean, the sort of Putin's control over most of the economic system is, is now so tight, or at least the security men's uh, control is now so tight. You have to kind of get approval from the top uh, to conduct any sort of uh, strategic business deal. I mean, one uh, one businessman told me that sort of Putin was Deciding a deal are worth only sort of maybe $40, 50 million fifty million dollars—it's incredible, really. So, so when, so when you have to kind of get approval for for that level of, of business deal, uh, sometimes you'll get an implicit order, or otherwise you'll try to do a favor for the Kremlin yourself so that you can stay on the right side of authorities and, and mm-hmm. gain advantages for your business. So, yeah, it's the system has actually really, really changed since the nineties. 19-
0: and, of course, we have to get to Donald Trump. I mean, you, you devote mm-hmm. an entire chapter to the president. What can you tell us about his relationship to Russia?
1: Well, it's a very complicated one, I guess, like all of them, but I think um he has been you know, he's been, was travelling to the Soviet Union in the late eighties, uh and he was always wowed by the I was told he was wowed by the architecture and also he's always had a punch on for, for Slavic women. He was uh seen as somebody that the the Soviet authorities believed that they could do business with. Uh I think they liked his sort of larger than life kind of a the and he, it was you know, it was the era of the, the great capitalists, and you know, and all, they also liked the fact that he probably didn't seem to care uh, where cash was was coming from. Um, and so I think so he Trump began his relationship with uh, Russia in in the late eighties, but if you get to fast forward to two thousand and one, two thousand and two, two thousand and three, around that time he his uh, organization, the Trump organization, became a very convenient vehicle for uh, some Russians to kind of funnel uh, uh, cash through and uh, not all of this cash was completely clean. Uh I mean I think you can look at the the Bayrock organization, which was a big business partner of, of the Trump organization from two thousand and two onwards. They were uh building uh sort of uh, several luxury uh Trump towers in, in Phoenix, Arizona, in Florida and also in Soho in New York. And um for this, for Bayrock, uh, which was led by, uh, you probably have heard this guy's name, Felix Sater and his business partner, Tufik Arif, uh, who had their origins really, uh, you know, in sort of not completely uh, squeaky clean businesses in the the former Soviet Union they were making a lot of money from a Kazakh chrome plant and one of the former finance directors of, of Bayrock uh, Jody Chris has said in court filings that essentially Bayrock was a mob were an organization he couldn't understand where they were getting all their money from it would miraculously turn up in accounts sort of day after day and and really <laughs> it just, it looked very fishy to him and, and Felix Sater himself has admitted to having very high level ties, uh, within Russian intelligence and indeed he used these ties to, uh, tell, uh, U.S. intelligence about, uh, the mobile phone numbers of Osama bin Laden and so on. But he, he wouldn't have been able to get this type of intel without being very close to Russian intelligence. So it kind of, you know, doesn't, looks all a bit dubious. And, uh, one of Trump's own ex, uh, former executives has said the thing about Donald is that he doesn't do due diligence. So his, his business became very convenient. To, for the Russians to move, uh, black cash, uh, into the U.S., uh, I think there's been a crackdown on some money laundering operations through banks after the U.S. passed the Patriot Act. So it became much easier to launder money through kind of high-end, uh, real estate. And there have been numerous reports on, on this by the, the U.S. government by now. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I think, uh, so I think, pro- I mean, there's obviously been a lot of speculation about whether Trump was a Manchurian candidate for the Russians, people have pointed to his close connections and so on, his business connections. But I don't, I don't think from the get-go that he was. But he's really a convenient vehicle for them to kind of funnel money through. But uh, at some point, I guess he became a political opportunity because they they knew him so well.
0: Right, right. I mean, I guess the very simple question people want to know is if you uh-huh. know it is. Did the Russians collude to elect him president?
1: Uh, well, that's the that is the gazillion dollar question. <laughs> so, I mean, well, but Mueller didn't seem to find uh, an answer to that. Uh, but I guess we haven't seen the his actual full conclusions yet because what was not published was the counterintelligence findings. And one ex-Russian uh, uh, KGB operative has told me that that what was published from the Mueller report was essentially no more than a bunch of interviews. What they published was just what. The, the people around Trump uh, told and It's what they wanted uh, the FBI to know. But in the meantime, a counterintelligence operation has been ongoing. I mean, it looks like uh For sure. I mean, the intelligence committee has concluded that yes, the Russians uh, did interfere in the US election and that sort of emails, of course, were hacked into, uh, from the Democrats and kind of disseminated in order to damage, uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, I think they, they were acting in support of Trump, but yeah, I mean, but we, without knowing the findings of the counterintelligence, uh, investigation, it's impossible to say for certain whether there was was true collusion or not
0: right right but
1: i think it was it was very convenient for the russians that donald trump won but i also think they couldn't believe it themselves, I think they, they, they knew that they were interfering in the election, but, uh, I don't think they ever believed themselves that, that Trump would actually won, win the election. So when he did, they were sort of, they were overjoyed, uh, but also stunned, uh, sort of Russian parliamentarians were pouring champagne, uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesperson was in New York at the time for a chess tournament. And you could see when he was interviewed that he was just completely related um but you can so for them it's been a kind of a double-edged sword uh, because uh, obviously, so Trump uh, is, is a disruptor just through his own nature, uh, but it also, it's very much kind of plays into the interests of Russia when he begins questioning NATO, when he's tearing up these post-Cold War alliances, uh, as we've seen only recently with him withdrawing US troops from Germany and sort of really kind of questioning the very foundations of the, the transatlantic alliance uh, with the EU and so on. All this is just kind of music to the the Russians' ears. They've been wanting to kind of undermine and, and disrupt these alliances for a long, long time. But of course, uh, you know, the, their operation was successful, but not successful in the sense that, that it became so obvious and that, that it was so clear that there were all these sort of Russians' uh, Clearly, around Trump attending these meetings with Natalia Veselitska when there were sort of known foreign intelligence operatives in the room uh, with Donald Trump Jr. And, and Paul Manafort. I mean, that meeting didn't come to anything, but it was actually embarrassing for for Trump. And um, it, yes, well, I, I, I think really, um, as, as one ex KGB officer said, he he he. Believes it was actually an embarrassment for Russia because their presence, uh, in and around his campaign to him seemed so obvious. He said it looks like a coal like a, a bunch of like a Soviet, uh, peasant farm. It was very heavy handed. <laughs> it was like Keystone Cops. And it's actually backfired for Russia because it's led to more sanctions. No question. But I about guess, it. I, you know. So uh, the Russians might be winning in terms of disruption, but again, it points to this sort of Putin's propensity for tactics rather than strategy. He's busy trying to tear up the the Western order, but his own country is getting weaker by the day, sort of rather than sort of spending his resources on trying to build a strong economy in Russia. He's basically siphoned all of the Russian resources to try and disrupt the West. And, you know, instead of trying to create a, a strong player out of Russia in, in its own right as a, a strong economy. So it's kind of, you know, it's disruptive for himself as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess this leads to the question, is there any stopping Vladimir Putin? I mean, where does he go from here? How long does he remain in power? What's happening with him? <laughs>
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, actually, again, he, he's slightly in trouble at the moment uh, because, I mean, like everywhere, he's uh, Russia has been hit by the coronavirus. It's had to shut down the economy, uh, but the Russian economy is also faced this double hit of so uh, quite steeply falling oil prices. The economy is very dependent on oil and gas for its revenues. The budget derives 50% of its revenues from oil and gas exports, so really, uh, he's in a quite a, a weak situation and uh, currently as you probably know he's proposing a raft of amendments to the constitution that would allow him to stay in power uh, for another two six-year terms right up till 2036 <laughs> but you can tell that he's very nervous now about uh, whether they will pass or not because and originally this vote, he you know he's already made the legislation have changed to allow these constitutional amendments to go through, but he was putting it as a referendum to the people. It was meant to be his kind of shining moment when he would be kind of be enshrined as Russia's are for forever and ever. Uh, but they had to postpone it because of the coronavirus. And initially the talk was of holding it in September, but now all of a sudden they're rushing ahead. They're going to hold it on 1st of July, even though the virus rates in Russia are, are still rising. They're not going down yet. Um, they're rushing ahead anyway, uh, regardless, because I think they're nervous that, uh, that when the economic fallout, both from the lockdown and the falling falling uh, oil prices is is going to hit and already his popularity ratings are falling. He hasn't really handled the crisis well. He's left it to the government and regional governors to handle the the pandemic uh, issues and he hasn't looked like a a very good leader. So his ratings are now at the lowest level in the last 20 years. They're racing through with a constitutional vote Uh, but already some uh, uh, regions are rebelling, and some uh, local electoral offices are saying we're not going to hold this uh, referendum because the virus is still rampant and we don't think it's safe. So he's he's already facing a rebellion on the local level, and and really, um, you know, the longer that the oil prices stay low, the longer that the sort of economic crisis goes on, the more that that will kind of wear away at his ratings and increase uh, the chances for protest
0: now i think in the last five years though especially with crimea and some mm. of the aggressive movements he's made i think there's a sentiment that putin was going to try to take over the former soviet republics and reconstitute mm. a new soviet union was that a myth is that a myth or is that still something that's uh a possibility
1: i think they probably like to and sort of one of the um elements that that Putin and the Kremlin were, were looking at as a means to ensure Putin could stay in power for a few more terms was, uh, by sort of, uh, forging a, a closer union with, with Belarus, uh, another former Soviet republic. Um, but the leader of Belarus has been rebelling against this. So they've had to sort of go through this for this much kind of more straightforward change of the constitution rather than creating a a whole new country. So I mean it's still it's still kind of it's still on the cards but I don't think um, I don't think Russia is going to go so far as annexing uh, other former Soviet republics because I guess they also felt the backlash over over Crimea from the West. I mean returning Crimea to Russia was an intensely popular move at the time. I mean it, it was seen as as, as as having been lost uh, from Russia through kind of the stroke of a pen uh, in a, an agreement, Nikita Khrushchev, the former Soviet leader, made in, in the 1950s, that it had always been seen as, as as part of Russia. And so, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia had lost access to this you know, fabled place of beauty, where Russia also always kept naval base, and it, it was great for for Putin's ratings for his his popular. And there's a huge surge of patriotism then, but really that's, uh, I don't think that's going to work if he starts trying to intrude, uh, at least militarily in other republics, especially now, because I think, uh, the more the, economic crisis hits Russian pockets, I think the less they'll be uh, enamored of, of, kind of foreign adventures where Putin is seen as spending huge amounts of money trying to strengthen his power outside Russia.
0: Hmm. Absolutely. And my final question for you is what's the part of this book or your reporting that surprised you the most?
1: Huh, that's a good question. Um, I think, uh, you know, initially, uh, the book, I was only going to be looking at kind of the money flows, um, what happened to sort of, well, I was looking at the KGB and what happened to, uh, Surrounding their their takeover of the economy and whether uh, and how they sort of essentially remained a power behind the scenes in the 90s, so that was already kind of pre-planned in a way when I began my reporting. Although I was able to get sort of a fine sort of many revelations along the way, but I guess uh, what was not planned and what did surprise me were some revelations from uh, one Kremlin insider uh, about sort of the role of the Kremlin or what he claimed was the role of the Kremlin in the planning of of some of the worst terrorist attacks that hit Russia during Putin's early presidency and I was in two minds for a long time whether to include these in the book because the book wasn't meant to be about that but this was a credible source and he's been very brave uh, in explaining uh, about these instances uh, including one uh, including uh, during the there was a, a siege of the Dubrovka Theater in Moscow um, you know and it always looked like a terrible terrorist attack but when you looked more closely some of the terrorists involved in the attack should have been in jail at the time so someone had clearly let them out and it also turned out when I delved a bit deeper that uh, prosecutors of Moscow prosecutors report that came out a year after the attack had found that the bombs that the terrorists had wired uh, the theater with were all essentially blanks so that none of them had any batteries uh, that would have allowed them to explode in the first place so why it was the Russian f- security forces went in uh, in such an aggressive way is you know it's 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 a object for great debate Um, so that was the most surprising thing for me hmm
0: well I uh, it's there's a tremendous amount of solid reporting in this book and Catherine Belton is the author of Putin's people how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West it's in stores June 23rd and available for pre-order now again Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining me in The Nexus.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for such great questions. Thank you.
0: And we will be right back. Our 25th episode. It has been a pleasure making these podcast shows for you over the last 15 months. The Nexus debuted on March 8th, 2019, with an episode that is even timelier today than it was then former Baltimore Police Department Captain Eric Kowalczyk discussed the Baltimore riots of 2015, making the case for police reform, and explained how this issue would have impact on the 2020 presidential race. As you already know, police reform is indeed front and center in this election and in America as we speak. I've enjoyed interviewing marvelous journalists and editors on a host of issues, From Angela Gryland Keane of Politico talking about how states were leading the way on vital policies like medical marijuana and abortion, to Ted Hessen, also of Politico, breaking down the inconvenient truth about immigration. The nexus has always sought to explore topics in a nonpartisan way, free of political bias. This allows you, the listener, to draw your own conclusions. Since we are in election year, we've been pleased to bring you cutting-edge political developments from those in the field. David Catenese from U.S. News & World Report gave us an early look at the Democratic primary field. Paul Steinhauser of Fox News discussed the the first-in-the-nation primary of New Hampshire in depth. And David Lauder of the Los Angeles Times brought us up to speed on the campaign now that it is a one-on-one race between President Trump and Vice President Biden. Molly O'Rourke, a national pollster, eliminated the essence of survey research and what to look for moving into 2020. I was also pleased to speak with a pair of number one New York Times bestselling authors, Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen, about their book Shattered and to learn about their unique commentary on the new race. On occasion, I featured friends of mine on the show because they had exceptional viewpoints on a particular issue. Gabe Eisner was profiled as the undecided voter back in April of 2019, while Danish-American Chris Hashtrop in August talked about President Trump's interest in buying Greenland. You don't hear much about that anymore, do you? I've been thrilled to host national politicians on the nexus. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown discoursed on his book, Desk 88, while Congressman Jim McGovern talked about his human rights initiatives in Congress. Most recently, I spoke with Joe Jorgensen, the 2020 Libertarian nominee for president about her historic campaign. As a huge music fan, it was a dream come true to talk with my favorite DJ who grew up to become the RUC programming chief at Pandora, Matthew Bates. In the music episode, we talked about the state of the streaming music industry, its struggle competing with satellite radio, and even the impact of Taylor Swift on sites like Spotify. It was such an engaging discussion for me. We waded into geopolitical waters with Jonathan Ward, one of the foremost experts on China and the increasing problems the world is facing with the communist superpower. Glenn Carl, a former CIA officer, discussed the psychological makeup of the whistleblower in the Ukraine impeachment saga. Garrett Martin, a transatlantic scholar, talked about the prime minister election in the United Kingdom and how it affected Brexit. We tackled Southern politics with Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields of the University of Arkansas and their book, The Long Southern Strategy, which has incredible resonance with the racial issues of today. And in the former capital of the Confederacy, Virginia, I spoke about the gun control legislation there with the nation's foremost constitutional scholar on the Second Amendment, Adam Winkler, and with Phil Hochevar, a former U.S. Marine and firearms owner in the Commonwealth. Speaking of Marines, we kept it in the family with the colorful Rudy Reyes, a force recon Marine who starred in the HBO miniseries Generation Kill and his thoughts on how to stay motivated in the global pandemic. On that note, Greg Bice of Gap Solutions offered his ideas on the federal preparedness regarding the coronavirus outbreak. Mark Hamrick, the Washington Bureau Chief for Bankrate, laid out the skyrocketing jobless claims and unemployment situation due to COVID-19. And for a personal human interest take on the devastating new reality, Matt Gillette, an Instacart shopper, talked about buying and delivering groceries for customers who couldn't go to or were too afraid to go to stores during this crisis. Finally, today you heard from Catherine Belton and her explosive new book, Putin's People. That may be heading to the bestseller list and is likely to provoke a lot of debate. That's 27 guests in 25 episodes. It's been a labor of love, and I thank you for joining me on this journey into the Nexus. I hope we have informed you, made you view some issues in a different light, and inspired you to learn more. Sincere thanks to Ian Heald and Greg Schaefer, two great friends and confidants I met through American University, who have either provided research or helped bring certain guests onto the nexus. But none of this would be possible without my partner, Colin Martin. Colin makes me sound good by producing the nexus, setting the sound levels, composing the theme music, creating the artwork and logo for the show, and motivating me to try new directions and new frontiers for the program. Our next show comes from a book that Colin read about a wounded warrior who found his way back. You won't want to miss it. Thank you, Colin, for 25 fantastic episode experiences. And thank you, dear listeners, for your support. More than 2,500 people have subscribed to the Nexus and has been perhaps my greatest highlight of the last year. That's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. Thank you for listening.